This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Douglas Mpuga, and here's what's coming up. The impact of that is potentially going to have a negative impact on the, the population access to a, a qualified professional health worker and therefore that there should be no active recruitment from those countries. That's Jim Campbell, WHO's director of the Health Workforce Department on the brain drain of health workers from developing countries, particularly in Africa. Also, Cyclone Freddy kills at least 200 people and heads for Mozambique again. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. Officials in Malawi have declared a state of disaster from tropical cyclone Freddy, which has killed about 200 people and displaced thousands. Survivors of homes washed away in southern districts are sheltering in schools but lack food, clothes, and blankets. In neighboring Mozambique, weather officials are warning the storm now weakened into a depression could bring more heavy rains as it passes over the country again. Officials urge people living in flood-prone areas to evacuate. The storm has been one of the longest and strongest in years. My colleague Kate Pound Dawson spoke with Anne Claire Fonten, a scientific officer in the Tropical Cyclone Office of the World Meteorological Organization. Fonten says Cyclone Freddy has been remarkable. Tropical Cyclone Freddy is it's quite an exceptional weather phenomenon by, by many aspects, actually, because of this uh, longevity, the distance he has covered, for example, the number of rapid intensifications, the maximum of intensity he has reached, and uh, as well as the accumulated cyclone energy, and unfortunately, the impacts over Madagascar, uh, Mozambique, and, and Malawi, as we speak. So uh, there are many records that this cyclone has, has maybe broken. I, I wanted to stress that my organization, the World Meteorological Organization, is currently um, setting up uh, an evaluation committee. Uh, this committee will start to work very quickly uh, now that the cyclone seems to be dissipating. And it will be this committee will be in charge of officialize which records uh, Tropical Cyclone Freddy has broken, such as, for example, whether he has been the longest lasting storm on record. And, for example, for this record, specific record, during this long life, because, as you said, from its very beginning on the 6th of February uh, until his third impact, I mean, his third landfall in Mozambique, it was 34 days, but during these days, um, Cyclone Freddy has not always been on the on the tropical cyclone status. So we we need to know they will assess whether these these days will be taken into account or not. And there is would be another another record that they will like to assess as well is whether the accumulated. Um, uh, cyclone energy has been uh, the most during tropical cyclone Freddy. How unusual is it for a uh, tropical cyclone 
to make repeated tracks over land. Very often, it seems, they will fade over land. Was this unusual for uh, Cyclone Freddie? Okay, so about the track of the tropical cyclones in general is steered by the atmospheric environment, right? So when it comes to the explanation of the uh, looping track, it's back and forward in the Mozambique Channel, it can be explained by the fact that typically tropical cyclone Freddy was stuck uh, in between two competing steering influences. So this is, this is not rare. I mean, we had seen this case in, back in 2016, for example, with tropical cyclone Fantara. But I wanted to stress the fact that what is remarkable about Freddy is that while it was crossing the entire South Indian Ocean, I, rem I remind uh, uh, that he was born in the northwest of Australia, and so while he was crossing the entire South Indian Ocean, he has been tracking within a meteorological environment that prevented it to track towards the polar latitudes and to disappear. Uh, the other fact that we can um, say is that even if he has made several landfalls, he has never completely dissipated uh, while he was overland. And the other fact, the third fact, is that so even being overland, then he was back overseas, and each time he has benefited from uh, good environmental conditions to gain energy again when, when he was back at sea. That was Anne-Claire Fonten, a scientific officer at the Tropical Cyclone Office of the World Meteorological Organization. She spoke by phone from Geneva with VOA's Kate Pound Dawson. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is in Addis Ababa for talks tomorrow with Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed after bilateral ties broke down amid reports of war crimes committed in Tigray. Blinken also visited Niger later this week. Human Rights Watch Washington Director Sarah Yaga tells VOA's Carl Van Dam the rights group worries that Blinken may normalize, will normalize U.S. relations with Ethiopia without holding the country responsible for atrocities committed during the two-year civil war in which hundreds of thousands of civilians were killed. Secretary Blinken has a history of being very strong and forceful in holding uh, perpetrators of human rights abuses accountable. He has done that in Burma. He's done that in other places. The suffering, as you note, in Ethiopia has been uh, catastrophic proportions. So we are concerned actually that the United States government um, is going to normalize its relations with Ethiopia and that Secretary Blinken will not have that kind of public or private tough message. About that, what should be the minimum threshold for normalizing relations with Ethiopia, do you think? I think Addis um, and Senate Abbey have a very long way to go to get normalized, should, should have a very long way to go to get normalized relations um, with the United States. You know, the United States uh, Secretary Blinken and President Biden have been very strong in their rhetoric about democracy and human rights. But what we've seen 
in Ethiopia is a backsliding on democracy. Absolutely. And of course, these atrocities in Tigray and in other regions and those atrocities, the abuses are ongoing. And so at the very minimum, they need to stop. Um, we have seen detentions. We have seen sexual violence. All of this after the secession of hostilities agreement. The secession of hostilities agreement has brought some relief to some populations, and that's important. We do want to give credit where credit is due. Um, but again, abuses are ongoing. Aid cannot get to certain places. Um, help for victims of sexual violence is nowhere to be seen. Detentions continue. There's a lot that needs to happen before the U.S. and Ethiopia should have that kind of handshake of a friendly relationship. And I think what I would really like for Secretary Blinken to say is, look, we've got intelligence and documentation of atrocities from the past two plus years of this happening in your country. We need you to know that we can make an atrocity determination based on what we have, and we will. That's what I hope he will say. That is Human Rights Watch Washington Director Sarah Yegam. She was speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Dam. Last week, a Secretary of State Molefi told journalists Ethiopia's two-year war with the Tigray People's Liberation Force involved terrible atrocities by all parties and was extremely disruptive the country's stability and economy. She said now Washington is looking to refashion its engagement with Ethiopia. She said, you know, historically, we've had a strong partnership with Ethiopia. But to build the relationship, build the, relationship the U.S. needs to see more steps by Ethiopia to help break the cycle of ethnic political violence that has set the country back for so many decades, including most ac acutely in this recent conflict. The World Health Organization warns the widespread disruption of health services during the COVID-19 pandemic has led rich countries to increase their recruitment of health professionals from poor countries. As a result, some African nations are losing skilled workers. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The world was suffering from a shortage of healthcare workers before the pandemic struck. Three years of COVID-19 has worsened an already bad situation. The World Health Organization reports more than 115,000 healthcare workers died from the coronavirus, one in three suffer from anxiety and depression, and about 40% have left the profession because of burnout. This has set up a global competition among countries to recruit nurses and doctors to fill their dwindling ranks. WHO warns the accelerated recruitment of health professionals from poor countries could hurt health systems in their home countries. Jim Campbell is WHO Director of the Health Workforce Department. Of the 55 countries identified as most vulnerable to recruitment, he says 37 are in the WHO African region. For these 37 countries, the impact of that is potentially going to have a negative impact on the, the population access to a, a qualified professional health worker. 
and therefore that there should be no active recruitment from those countries. He says it is easy for anyone who has a professional license within the African continent to migrate and seek work anywhere inside or outside the region. He says poor working conditions and low pay contribute to the growing brain drain of health workers from the continent. The Gulf uh, states have traditionally uh, been reliant on international personnel. And then some of the the OECD high-income countries have really accelerated their recruitment and employment to respond to the pandemic and respond to the, the loss of lives, the infections, the absences of workers during the pandemic. Campbell says WHO does not work to prevent migration among healthcare workers. He notes migration has benefits when it is managed appropriately and when the benefits are accrued by the individuals and systems of both the source and destination countries. WHO has drawn up a list of safeguards to ensure the international movement of health workers is ethically managed and measures are taken to ensure an adequate supply of health workers remain in the sending countries. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. You are listening to Africa News tonight. I'm Douglas Impuga in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite viewer radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. Morocco has been calling attention to the threat posed by the sales of Iranian drones to Algeria for use by the Polisario Gorilla fighters. Senior officials from the kingdom have also highlighted statements made by the Polisario Front about the receipt of drones and other weapons from Algeria, along with training and the development of infrastructure to operate them. Ambassador Lincoln Bloomfield, former Assistant Secretary of State for Political and Military Affairs, discussed with VOA's senior analyst Mohamed Al-Shanawi how serious it is to provide the Polisario Front with the Iranian drones? I think it's very serious. And you saw that the United States Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, was in Rabat with Morocco's Defense Minister, deepening the defense cooperation between the two sides. The publicity did not go into details, but I am confident they discussed the drone threat. The drone threat from Iran has become really a high priority for the Pentagon. We saw what happened in the Gulf in recent years with the attack on the oil gathering station in Saudi Arabia, a highly accurate, sophisticated attack that was undetected with missiles and drones. And there are programs now in the United States to experiment with many different solutions against small and medium drones. The larger drones can be countered by sophisticated systems like Patriot missile, but the smaller drones, the 
ones that Iran is giving to Russia to kill Ukrainians, for example, this represents a difficult threat and it requires new solutions which are being explored. So I think this is on the agenda now of the senior national security team in Washington as well. They are very concerned and they have reinforced their solidarity with Morocco. With the West's eye firmly on the role Iranian drones are playing in Ukraine, as you said, concerns are rising in Africa that Iran is playing a major destabilizing role in the region through the support of terrorist proxies. Omar Hilal, Morocco's ambassador to the United Nations, said Iran, after undermining the stability of Syria, Yemen, Iraq, and Lebanon, is in the process of destabilizing our region. What's your take on that? I look at it two different ways. In the first way, it is true. Iran is doing exactly as you said, and they're doing more than that. The regime in Iran has established a network of militias, starting with Shia, Arab militias, Hezbollah being the number one, but also Shia militias in Iraq, the Houthis in Yemen, and others, under the direction and support of the Quds Force, is still very active. Now they're talking to other non-state actors like the Polisario, and they're establishing the relations that you referred to. So one way to look at this is that there is a, a serious danger. And I would add to this the activities of the Iran Ministry of Intelligence and Security, which has been conducting covert surveillance, uh, kidnapping, and coercion operations against exiled Iranians all over Europe and the United States and Canada. So there have been warnings from MI5 in the UK last year. There were events in the United States that the FBI talked about. There was a major cyber attack in Albania, an attempted bombing in France that was captured, and uh, the Belgian court sentenced a spy, Mr. Asadi Asadola, to 22 years in prison. And then Iran seized a Belgian hostage and tried to trade him under a swap treaty. So what I'm describing for you is a series of destabilizing efforts that undermine international peace and security. In Africa in particular, Iran is being drawn closer to Russia because they are both under heavy sanctions. So the Wagner Group is creating trouble south of uh, the Maghreb. And now here comes Iran working through Algeria and the Polisario to create a threat to Africa. The second side of this, though, is why are they doing it? I personally believe that the regime in Iran is in deep trouble. They are very much uh, under pressure from the uprising uh, led by women, but also all kinds of communities, including the Baluch and the, the Azeris and the Kurds. The regime is in trouble. So they are keeping these men busy <laughs> doing this revolutionary agenda around the world and making money doing the same selling drugs and whatever else they do, armaments. It's a terrible picture. And, the, and what needs to happen is the governments of the world who are responsible need to stand up, talk to each other, and recognize that this regime in Iran poses an unending threat to peace and stability and security, and they do not support the norms of international behavior or international law. So there needs to be more attention to the overall threat from Iran. That was Ambassador Lincoln Broomfield, former Assistant Secretary of State for Political and Military Affairs, speaking with VOA Senior Analyst Mohammed El Shanawi. <laughs> Sudan has said it will host Russia's first Navy base in Africa despite opposition from the West as soon as the country completes a transition from military to civilian rule. But while some Sudanese support 
the business that a base would bring, local tribal leaders oppose a foreign military presence. Henry Wilkins reports from Port Sudan, Sudan. Port Sudan is Sudan's vital link to the Red Sea, a body of water strategically important for global powers and the countries that surround it, not least for its access to the Suez Canal. Port Sudan made headlines in February after Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov visited Sudan. During the visit, the Sudanese junta, which took power in a military coup in 2021, promised Russia a new naval base in the city. But local tribal leaders, who carry a big influence on the Red Sea coast, have other ideas. Mohamed Kara Kubar says he and other local leaders are against the Russian base. They refuse because they want just to put their hand and stop our port, I think. No investment. They have tried, they have refused any military in our in February, Middle East Eye, a news website based in London, reported that Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, a powerful Sudanese militia leader, attempted to open military bases along the Red Sea coast, but was prevented by local tribal leaders after they demanded money for development. A small Russian logistics base is reported to have been set up in Port Sudan in the past, but according to local media and residents, it ceased operation in 2021. In the vicinity of the old base, in the Flamingo district of the city, one local declined to give his name when VOA asked if he supported the Russian naval base. He says if a Russian naval base is in Sudanese interests, he wouldn't have a problem with it. I don't care who's involved, whether they are British, Russian or Americans, he added. One analyst said there has been talk of a full-fledged Russian naval base in Port Sudan for years, yet it has never materialised. Cameron Hudson is with the Centre for Strategic and International Studies, a Washington-based think tank. The case of the missing naval base has been around for uh, many years. Uh, This base has been promised to have been built, uh, I don't know how many times now, five or six times. Another analyst thinks the base could go ahead if Sudan's ruling junta is determined to make it happen. Hala Al-Karib is with the Strategic Initiative for Women in the Horn of Africa. I don't know. I think it very much depends uh, on the, um, the naval base. It it's very much depends on the direction that the political process is going to take. You know, so uh, if the regime is actually um, moving towards consolidating a, a 100% military power in Sudan, Sudan already has well-established links with Russia and the Russian paramilitary group Wagner. Sudan's hunter is reported to be trading the country's gold in exchange for Russian weapons. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Port Sudan, Sudan. Three human rights groups are calling for the release of five Burundian activists who were arrested last month and charged with rebellion and undermining domestic security. Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and the Burundian Human Rights Initiative are calling for their release and calling the charges baseless. The group say the arrests indicate a worsening climate for independent civil society in Burundi. The Interior Ministry said the government is investigating the financing of terrorism from funds granted to the accused by international NGOs. 
AFP says despite concerns of rights, both the EU and the United States resumed aid flows to the country, citing political progress under President Evariste Ndayishimiye. And a reminder that you can catch the results of today's two games in the Basketball Africa League on the sunny side of sports. Thanks to our staff who are watching all of the BLA action in Dakar, Senegal, you can follow the results on voaafrica.com. Season 3 of the Basketball Africa League is here. Starting off in Dakar from March 11th to March 21st for the Sahara Conference, then heading to Cairo from April 26th to May 6th for the Nile Conference, and the excitement continues to build in the finals in Kigali from May 21st to May 27th. Tune in and follow the BAL on The Voice of America. The Voice of America's global news program, International Edition, brings you an in-depth look at the biggest news stories of the day. Nobody covers the world more comprehensively than VOA. Our correspondents gather the news and the views of the most seasoned experts on international issues. Tune in Monday through Friday at 3.30 and 1705 UTC on The Voice of America. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Douglas Simpoga in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Kwame Oforim, and our engineer, Nelson Lopez, thanks for choosing The Voice of America. 